All right, guys. We got to talk about a huge problem India is facing. No, I'm not talking about the ever increasing cases of COVID, the being ripped apart to shreds economy, or the silent rise of neo-fascism across the world. No, this is something far more important. This is about water. India is facing an existential threat where on any given day 600 million people face high to extreme water stress. Roughly 100 million people are without access to safe drinking water. India is facing a freshwater crisis where we have just 4% of the world's freshwater but 16% of the global population for it to cater to. We're also facing a clean water crisis where 21% of the country's diseases are water related and over 3 lakh 29000 children under the age of 5 died due to diarrhea in the year 2015. The intersectionality of inequalities means that this problem is far worse for women. Across India as a whole it is estimated that women spend roughly 150 million workdays every year fetching and carrying water. The opportunity cost alone astounds. The total potentially irrigable land is 42 million hectares. However, only 10% of that land is being irrigated. Now these make for some very grim reading, but the future is not looking too good either. The government itself is telling us that by 2030, approximately 40% of India's population will not have access to drinking water. and i don't know why but i sort of have this feeling that a large majority of that 40% are going to be the indians living closest to the poverty line i mean i don't know why i just have that gut feeling i i could be wrong but i think it's going to be them we're also an incredibly thirsty country it's estimated again by the government that groundwater reserves have declined 61% in the decade from 2007 to 2017 India consumes about one fourth of the globally available groundwater, which is get this more than the United States and China combined. That's right, combined. Now, although we are dangerously coming close to sucking our entire groundwater aquifers dry, we also lead the charts in global water exports. either directly or through products which require huge amounts of water to manufacture products like cotton and rice data from the water footprint network reveals that india exports 95.4 billion cubic meters of water that's nearly four times as much water as all indian homes and industries consume every year well, look at us guys we're selling the rest of the world water intensive products while half the country itself faces an existential threat due to no access to drinking water i mean this has to be our most atmanirbhar moment guys let's be honest by far i mean this is by far our most atmanirbhar moment and i haven't even gotten into the calamities that floods droughts and unseasonal rains and climate change are going to cause these were just problems in management and it's also not like india doesn't receive enough rainfall that's not our problem in fact out of the 17 most water stressed countries in the world india is the only one which receives over a 1000 mm of annual rainfall on the same list by the way we have libya with 
millimeters of annual rainfall israel with 59 millimeters of annual rainfall and mainly other desert countries like qatar jordan and uae of course there's everyone's favorite failed state pakistan on the same list with 494 millimeters of annual rainfall and you know isn't that what it's really about being slightly less worse than pakistan now all of this begs the question who is at fault here is the government guys <laughs> there's no two ways about it we know it's the government the problem however gets all the more egregious when corporations with deep pockets and a desire to make them deeper get involved which is why today we have with us dr shripad dharmadikari in 1985 shripad ji did a very cool thing and graduated from iit bombay with a btech degree he later went on to do even cooler things like become a full time activist of the narmada bachao andolan for a period of 10 12 years he's worked co- closely with the world commission on dams from its inception to its follow up unep dams and development project he has also set up the manthan adhyayan kendra a center to research monitor and analyze water and energy issues with him i attempt to unearth the extent of the problem of the water crisis where the solutions for the water crisis exist and indeed more fundamentally whose water is it anyway shripaji thank you so much for joining me i'd like to start with the beginning of your journey with water talk to us a little bit about the initial experiences and influences that you had as well as your work with the narmada bachao andolan and how the lessons that you've learned there continue to live with you today uh first of all uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share uh, some of my experiences and some of my thoughts uh, how i got interested in water uh, it's a story and uh, uh, when it was happening uh, the whole uh, sort of transition for me to you know as a, as an engineering student who had the only aim in my life was a good career or a, you know uh, to have a good career make a lot of money from there into a more a different way of uh, you know uh, expecting uh, a different ex- set of expectations from life i think it was a long journey and uh, uh one can see the journey only while looking back why when it was happening uh one really didn't know where it was all going to land up but just to uh you know uh, sort of summarize those three or four years in uh, in a few sentences i would say that i uh, by the time i completed my graduation in engineering my basic aspiration which i guess is with most people was to make a lot of money and uh, particularly uh, have a good career and particularly i chose not necessarily to have a job but i thought let me set up something of my own so that was my aspiration and for that i uh, did not take up any job and i decided to work with some other people whom i knew in the city of pune that's not where i've grown up but i decided to come to pune because i had found the city very attractive uh, both from its uh, you know uh environment uh, physical environment the hills the greenery uh, but also from its uh, spirit you know the thriving cultural activities and uh, of, you know it was full of life lot of activities were happening people were interested in doing things so uh, i came to pune and when i was 
in Pune and trying to pursue my basic first step in trying to move towards setting up something of my own. Uh, that is when actually uh, I saw some things which were very disturbing to me. You know, the uh, river which flows through Pune, uh, it was so polluted. You know, there are two rivers, Mula and Mutha. And uh, now I'm talking about something which is probably more than 30 years back. So you can imagine that at that time also it was so polluted. Uh, even though I guess by today's standards it must have been a little better. So I was, uh, you know, really, uh, really disturbed. And then the air pollution, because even at that time, there were a fair amount of vehicles in Pune. And so the air was quite polluted. And I started to get quite disturbed by this. And I said, you know, why, uh, I, I must do something about this. You know, I want to do something about this. I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, I cannot be a bystander. And I think that was kind of the, uh, the, the movement, the moment where it shifted for me. Then, of course, you know, there was a long process in which I tried to see which is the way I could, what could I do in environment, uh, what could I do to correct these things. So because I had an engineering background, I said, okay, uh, you know, let me do a PhD in environmental engineering and then maybe I can have a consultancy or something of my own in which, you know, I can do my bit for the environment and also, you know, uh, have a good career. Uh, so I started moving towards that, making some applications for higher uh, studies in environmental engineering. And that is a time when one of the local groups suggested to me whether I could do a short uh, audiovisual, uh, prepare a short audiovisual for them on paper mill pollution. Uh, there are a lot of paper mills around Pune. So I started to do that and uh, I took some photographs and I interviewed people and I came back and then I went into some documents to prepare the commentary for it. And I was quite taken aback. I saw that for every kind of paper mill that we have, for every kind of raw material that uh, we use for making paper, there is a pollution control technology available. And yet what I've seen while making this going around, you know, was that uh, there was terrible pollution which was happening. And that sort of made me start thinking in a very different way that pollution is persisting in spite of the fact that we have technology to correct the pollution. So what is the problem? What I realized was that Pollution persists because of the imbalance of power in society. That somebody is powerful, a person who owns the factory is very powerful economically, politically, he or she has the right connections. So they can just throw their pollution into the river and it doesn't, uh, you know, nobody is going to do anything to him or her. And, uh, but the people who suffer, the people on the banks of the river, they are the ones who have no power, they have no voice. So, I sort of started coming to a position that if one has to really make a dent in the problem of pollution, uh, then one has to uh, address not the technology. Technology is important, no doubt about it. But the real solution is to address the power imbalance in society. So I got a, into a whole different set of thinking. I dropped my plans to pursue my further education. And I started looking out for where I could work so that I could address this power imbalance. And that is when I heard about the movement that was happening in the Narmada uh, Valley. It was just fledgling. It was just building up, I think, just very, very initial years. But for once, I understood, I saw that here there were people who were at the receiving end of an environmental and social sort of disaster. And they were coming together to challenge it. And as I could figure out from whatever I'd seen till then, the only power 
that the affected people have against the political and economic power of those who are polluting or those who are destroying the environment is the power of solidarity of coming together of building of organizing of mobilizing and that was what was happening in the narmada valley so when i saw that then i said that this is a good place for me to you know uh try and whatever i want to do in terms of making a difference and by then my understanding about environment had also evolved a, a lot because by then i had started looking at environment and understood that environment is much more than pollution environment is also natural resources also forests the rivers so many other things and uh, environment is uh, or the destruction of environment is just the flip side of the developmental choices we are making every day we are making a choice in terms of how to use the water how to use the land how to use forest and those choices are impacting the environment those choices will decide whether the environment uh, remains conserved and enhanced and you know uh becomes better or it becomes worse it gets destroyed so i saw all these threats coming together in the narmada valley and so that's when i decided that okay this is what i want to become a part of and that's how i came and you know joined the narmada valley i joined the narmada bachao andolan which was uh, just emerging as a very important or a very strong mobilization of the people affected by the uh, sardar sarovar dam So the Narmada Bachao Andolan for me was one of the first exposures I had to uh, a mass level environmental people's movement as well as it was one of the first movements that led me to question who owns natural resources i mean we see uh, lakes ponds rivers uh, dams catchment areas reservoirs uh, there's groundwater aquifers there's water water everywhere you know but who really owns the water is something that i think there's not as much clarity on as there should be so talk to us a little bit about uh, the aspect of ownership of water resources or management of water resources so uh, you know water is a natural resource and i think uh, in in every way legally or in terms of uh, a kind of a you know a common social understanding natural resources actually uh, cannot and should not be owned by anybody as such neither a person nor by a by a uh, you know uh, an uh, an entity like a corporate or some other uh, you know a legal person so to say uh, of course we have some exceptions to that rule land is you know owned by people but still largely we have you know water as a resource generally largely has been something which has uh, you know been outside this purview of any specific ownership and even today it is treated as a as a common pro- common resource a common property resource for the for the entire society or for the entire community to use and this is particularly uh, you know also happening um, in the case of water because of its specific nature because water is a flowing resource water is not a you know in a way it's not a steady resource so unlike a piece of land which somebody can own or like a say even a forest which a person can own because that person owns say the land uh, which is part of the forest water is uh, also more difficult to own because the it flows and you know it changes form from liquid to uh, vapor to solid in terms of snow and ice so uh, for all these reasons 
uh, water has not traditionally been owned by anybody, though there are lots of attempts to try and put ownership to it and different legal frameworks do put ownership on that. But I would argue that water should and must remain a common resource of the community and it should not be owned by anybody as such. Uh, and of course, our own uh, legal uh, um, framework is there, you know, according to the Supreme Court, uh, water is essentially uh, held in trust by the state. It is not even owned by the government or by the state, but it is held in trust by the state for the uh, people at large. So, although uh, that's a that's a incredibly uh, profound way of and mature way of of, of understanding this issue, uh, the real world implications of that are far from it. You know, because although uh, as you said, you know very rightly that no one person or one entity can be said to uh, own water, but yet we see so many singular entities completely utilizing water for only their benefit. You know, it's it's not just an issue that's there in India. It's it's uh, the issue of privatization of water has been a global phenomena. Uh, you know, just to cite an example from Bolivia, uh, in in 1919 there was a, a, a consortium of companies called Aguas del Tunari, as I'm sure you know. Uh, which the they they were offered a contract a city contract uh, for uh, for management of all the water in that particular district now the effect of that management was basically that an, an ordinary citizen was being charged roughly a quarter of his or her monthly salary went into paying the water bill uh, thereafter the company without any hesitation declared that it would disconnect the the water for all those who could not pay Similar situations happened in Manila and Guinea when water rates after privatization shot up by 500 and 750% respectively. Uh, so, although, uh, you know, from a very uh, sustainable point of view, you cannot say that uh, ownership of water does rest, but privatization of water continues to exist in across the world as well as in India. So. Talk to us a little bit about the problems that arise from privatization of water. Yes. So I think this is a very important uh, point and very important distinction that we should make. You know, when people uh, talk about privatization and privatization in the water sector has been a very, very contentious issue, uh, the government or other people try to pass it off by saying, oh, we are not privatizing water. We are only handling the management of the water in private hands. For example, the example that you gave from Bolivia, which was uh, Cochabamba City, uh, you know, that uh, they said, oh, the water is not privatized. It is only the management or the delivery of the water that has been handed to a private company. But this is, we think this is a very specious and a very wrong uh, uh, kind of uh, distinction to make. Uh, because, you know, the... Uh, the uh, that's why actually you know we proposed a very different definition of privatization or we means manthan our group which has been studying water privatization for many years uh, we propose a very different definition or a understanding i won't even call it a definition we said that privatization of water is any process where any part of the water chain right from its source to its end use if any part of this entire chain is under the control of a private entity, then it should be called privatization. And second, 
in any process where water is being uh, used or sold or traded as a item of profit that should be called privatization so you know we feel that it is one this expanded uh, definition of privatization where it is not the ownership but the control which is very critical because ownership you know is essentially nothing but control yeah. you know uh, and in india we know very much uh, how it works that many times people can control uh, resources people can control property without actually owning it so what is very critical is control uh, not so much as ownership ownership of course also, also critical so i think we must distinguish between privatization and ownership of water so in this context uh, talk to us a little bit about something that you've been a vocal critic of in the past as well uh, which is the role of uh, uh, big uh, you know international banks and investment banks such as the uh, asian development bank uh talk to us a little bit about their role in in privatization and how has the introduction of big money in uh the aspect of the water industry really uh caused you know terrible effect effects for people on the ground and local communities yeah so you know i should uh, you know maybe we should uh, before that put a little bit of context so if you look at the definition or the understanding of privatization which i just talked about then uh, privatization of water has been in existence in india particularly for many 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 centuries i would say okay uh, for example i think caste based denial of access to water is a very important part of what one can call as a privatization of water where water was the private uh, in a way you know property or private control of a certain caste or certain castes so uh, so we had those kind of things around or if you see more recent examples when you know the the entire uh, uh, supply of water by tankers where you know uh, the water supply is controlled by a set of private players so we have had these things in the country for many many years but what has happened in the past couple of decades uh, is a slightly different kind of privatization where the water resource comes into the control of very large corporations who have very very deep pockets and therefore they also have a big uh, they have a, a very big reach amongst the policy makers and decision makers and because they have so much money and so much power they can influence policies they can change policies they can start controlling the entire system so this uh, kind of privatization which one can call corporatization of water uh, you know because uh, mostly it is uh, you know that the water uh, uh, control or ownership goes to the hands of big corporates this is something a phenomena which has started in the last couple of decades or more in india it's been also there internationally uh, earlier but in india and uh, this has been primarily pushed in our country by these international financial uh agencies like the world bank asian development bank these are the two sort of main ones but there were also some others which have been involved in it and uh the reason is not very far to see uh first of all these banks are of course uh, their whole ideology is built around uh privatization and private profits and you know uh they see government's role mainly to facilitate uh, the uh 
you know, work of the corporates in, in, in many, many ways. That is their whole agenda. And their, uh, their ideology also believes in market operation, free markets operation. So basically, let the market decide, let the market control all these things. That is their whole approach. And <laughs> the other thing is, most of these big corporations, at least for uh, quite some time, uh, have essentially been uh, have essentially been uh, corporates uh, from the countries who control these banks. World Bank is controlled by, say, countries like the U.S. and some of the European countries. And we have these big corporates, water companies, from the same countries. So, in a way, these uh, financial agencies have also played a role of opening up the markets for these companies. You know, I think the nexus is very, very clear. There is uh, uh, there is no uh, you know, uh, 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 no hiding that nexus, very, very clear. Of course, the name given for that was development, uh, you know, bringing modern systems to India, you know, leveraging the power of market, uh, public-private partnerships, all kinds of names are given. But really, uh, uh, the big push to privatize the water sector in the country, the big push to push lots of parts of the water system in the country into the hands of these large corporates has come from these international agencies uh, to push, you know, uh, uh, the market access for their companies uh, in their countries. So, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, things to comment about what you just said, but, uh, and I'd like to get back to some of it, such as the understanding public-private partnership. I think that's very important. But more importantly, uh, Based on your experience on the ground in in uh, going to places and and meeting individuals who are uh, who have their entire livelihoods destroyed because of some quote unquote development project that some person sitting in Delhi or in Bombay thought that is a, is a good idea, uh, but the benefits of those projects rarely ever reach the people who are quite often right next to that very project, be it a dam which causes uh, you know. Uh, livelihoods to be lost in and around that area, uh, be it uh, uh, the, um, the thermal uh, power plants or mining of coal, you know, uh, these these often uh, have very adverse impacts on local communities living around the project area. So talk to us a little bit about how the gains from these uh, many projects often are privatized into the hands of a few uh, and uh, the gains can sort of be seen somewhat in cities but the costs are always felt at the ground level by villagers, by individuals uh, of tribal communities who often don't get a voice, their voice heard at all. So how bad is it, uh, is the situation for them? Yeah, actually it's quite terrible. And as you yourself have outlined with the question, this happens in almost every kind of project, uh, which we call a developmental project. You know, it's very interesting. If you look at uh, all our developmental projects, uh, particularly till say 1991 when we introduced a much more uh, when, when when we brought in a much higher level of privatization in many of the projects like power sector or other other projects uh, most of these projects were in the public sector they were being funded and pushed by the government so uh, you know to justify any of this project uh, there used to be this uh, uh, parameter called the cost benefit analysis where what you do is you put the cost, uh, what is the cost of the project and what are the benefits from the project, and then you try to see if the benefits exceed the cost, then that's a project worth 
pushing ahead for and uh, one of the things which we have always been pushing for pointing out is that it is not enough to do a cost benefit analysis of the project but we must also look at what is the distribution of these costs and benefits who gets the benefits and who gets the costs because if you find which is what happens invariably that the benefits go to a whole different set of people and the costs are paid by a different set of people then even if the benefits exceed the cost the project needs to be questioned because you cannot really have this in a modern civilized society that you know the developmental projects are built on the sacrifice and on the sufferings of another set of people of the you know same part of the society so if you take for example the dam everywhere you'll find that uh, the people who have been displaced by the dam who have lost their houses who have lost their lands uh, have got pittance and they have literally they, they they rarely have ever got a share in the benefits of the project uh, you know but most of them or many many of them have ended up you know doing wage labor or have gotten lost in the slums in the city this has been a you know experience decades after decades same thing with uh, say a coal mining project where people are displaced and you often find that they continue to live on the periphery of the mine bearing the brunt of the pollution bearing the brunt of the impact on water and you know they don't even often get the jobs in that they don't even get electricity many times you know we have seen i personally seen for example villages around singroli now singroli is a district in madhya pradesh but the singroli area is the singroli and sonbhadra districts in madhya pradesh and uttar pradesh which uh, are called the energy capital of india where you have large number of coal mines and many uh, power plants and i visited that area and you know the tragedy that people who have been thrown out of their lands to make way for either the coal mine or the power plant are living without electricity in the energy capital of india so you know these kind of uh, stark examples are there all around us in 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 most of these development projects i think there cannot be a more uh, cruel example of irony uh, that a person whose entire life is being destroyed by uh, a thermal energy power plant does not even get a pit in uh, uh, you know mere crumbs of that energy to power their house it's uh, indeed uh, quite sad but uh, more importantly uh, given that we've been talking about quote unquote development projects uh, as, as well as in the context of understanding how scarce our water resources are getting uh, you know the niti aayog just 2 years ago came out with a report that uh, 21 cities in india uh, 21 major cities in india you know including delhi bangalore chennai and hyderabad uh, are going to run seriously low on their groundwater reserves by this very year so it's going to cause tremendous amount of problems and this is something that the government themselves uh, are accepting uh, in this context talk to us a little bit about the current government and how they have been systematically trying to Uh, either circumvent environmental regulations or in the case of the eia dilution they are outright uh, just waving them off uh, talk to us a little bit about how this current government has dealt with the issue of water yeah so you know if you just start with the same niti aayog report that you referred to which actually is a report where uh, they uh, brought out what they call a 
uh, I think composite uh, water management index or something. I forgot the uh, actual name that they gave, but they uh, proposed an index where uh, you know uh, some there were some 20 parameters on which uh, uh, people uh, the states would be scored, and then whoever gets the highest score is managing the water the best. Okay, and uh, on one hand, uh, that report of course you know sets the context thing. Talks about groundwater depletion, talks about environmental degradation, talks about uh, you know how our freshwater resources are being uh, uh, are being uh, damaged, and then if you see the index, the index at the parameters on it is actually give far higher weightage to the same processes or the same type of projects which are destroying the water environment. So you know what is happening with this government is even at the place where they. Uh, sort of acknowledgement acknowledge the problem they are still sticking to the whole traditional approach of water management where uh, you know basically uh, is the same approach which has led to all these problems being caused you know just to give you one example before uh, i come to the example of dilution of laws you know what is being the core of our water management uh, of our managing our rivers, let us say, because the rivers are the biggest sort of source of water for most of the country. And if you look at rivers, what has been the core principle of managing our rivers? The core principle is that any drop of water that goes into the sea is a waste. And you will find it written in these very words in policy documents. And it's being used by all kinds of ministers and government officials. Now, this is means what you are saying is that every drop of water must be extracted out from the river. That means what is going to happen? And the river is going to go dry with all sorts of effects, both on the environment as well as on the communities, other communities who live on the banks of the river. But, you know, so unless you change this, you there is no point in lamenting about, uh, uh, you know, that the rivers are going dry and, uh, you know, the uh, uh, river in ecology is collapsing. So you will have to decide that, look, I cannot extract 100% of the water from the river. I cannot go ahead and build 20, 30, 40 dams in a single river basin. You know, I have to allow the river to flow. Unless this whole approach is completely and dramatically and diametrically changed, there is no point in lamenting about it. Same thing you see in the case of the environmental laws. You know, what this government has been doing is, on one side, they talk about uh, how environment friendly they are, how they want sustainable development. But if you see then the entire framework of uh, environmental impact assessment and environmental clearance in this country is being systematically diluted. So we have in this country the main um, piece of regulation which regulates uh, assessing the environmental impacts of any developmental activity or a project is the so-called EIA notification 2006, Environment Impact Assessment Notification 2006, which lays down which projects will have the EIA done, which projects and how the EIA is to be done, and how the environment clearance is to be given to these projects. Now, this notification was passed in 2006, and the government has been consistently diluting it. And now they have brought out a new notification, new draft of the same notification called the draft 2020, which really will much, much more sort of, you know, dilute or weaken the existing framework, which itself is pretty deep. Just to give you one example, the EIA notification says very clearly that uh, 
such and such a so they list the number of projects they in the schedule the projects are listed and they say that all these projects will require a prior environmental clearance which means before you start that activity or a project you need to do the assessment of its impact and you need to get an environmental clearance that okay we allow this project to go ahead and that makes sense because if you want to assess the impact it has to be done beforehand and if you find that the impact is very high then you may say that okay don't go ahead with this project or go ahead with it in a modified form right but we have hundreds of projects in this country which have gone ahead in complete violation of this law without going in for any environment clearance they have gone ahead and started construction started operation now this new draft brings in a provision which says that if there is a project which has gone ahead without such a clearance then it can come back to us and we will they allow they have a procedure which allows the regularization of that project which basically uh, at some small at some fee basically there is only a monetary uh, kind of a thing which you have to pay which essentially means that anybody can just go ahead and go uh, you know violate the law and it will be later on uh, regularized post facto now this is a very very problematic provision because this completely takes away the bottom out of the whole legislation where the main principle is prior environmental clearance there are several examples the other one more example i would like to give because it's an issue that we have been doing a lot of work around is you know 3 uh, 4 years back the government of india has launched a massive program to convert uh, many of our rivers into inland waterways where i mean you know always small boats and uh, vessels have been plying on this rivers but now the idea is to have this huge barges with you know 1000 2000 3000 ton capacity carrying bulk cargo and very large cruise uh, ships so that's the kind of plan is they have made now to have these kind of large ships in our rivers which are dry for a lot of time or which mostly don't have that required depth year round you need to then actually create that uh, navigation path by dredging by cutting the river but you are actually going to cut the river bed so what you are doing is you are going to cut the river channel and make it deep make it into a deep channel now all this has huge impacts on the environment but you know the uh, draft notification uh, puts the inland waterways into a category of projects which they call b2 and b2 category of projects virtually don't require any environmental impact assessment so they don't require an environmental impact assessment and uh, they have to make a small what they call a emp environment management plan but they have to be accorded clearance within 15 days now you can imagine that within 15 days there is no possibility of really analyzing or looking or scrutinizing the impact of any such project in fact they don't even require an environment clearance they require only an environment permission as they call it so you know uh the inland waterways is only one example there are large number of projects which have very significant uh, impact on the environment including chemical plants and many other plants which have been put into this b2 category of projects in the draft and i could go on and on you know this these examples now have been well documented by uh, by us by many other people and this is a very very clear sign that the aim of this draft of this draft notification is not environment is not the preservation or conservation of the environment but it is basically to promote ease of doing business you know that's uh, 
basically what they're doing is creating uh, an an environment which is just antithetical to what the ministry of environment should be really doing they're becoming a ministry of sanctions when there should be a ministry that is out there cancelling sanctions that is out there preventing people from doing it which is uh, it's just fundamentally sad but uh, that really really begs the question uh, that so we've we found out that uh, uh, letting the government have complete access of of water resources is going to lead to problems we found that a privatization of water resources has its own set of problems we've also found that a public private partnership in some way just takes the worst of both worlds into an even more egregious ball of just uh, you know illegality so what are our alternatives then how do we create a sustainable model of management of water resources because you know water is completely and uh, inextricably linked to nearly all aspects of our life you know right from agriculture to industry to energy uh, almost all the products that we eat that we use in our daily life require some amount of water somewhere down the supply chain so how do we create effective and sustainable models of management of water so i would say that it is essentially a question of political will of social will you know uh, it is not as if the solutions are not known i think by now we have a lot of experience both nationally internationally at the regional level at the local level about what is what is it that needs to be done you know how do we ensure that our rivers flow that our groundwater don't deplete that our forests grow you know that our wildlife survives yes it is known okay but what is missing is one of course the political will is often talked about but i would also say the social will and by that i mean do we as a society really really value these things then our society must exert its will to make it happen and that can happen through ensuring proper accountability measures and making sure that those you know accountability measures hold uh, those who are responsible uh, they really hold them accountable so there are no shortcuts there are no shortcuts but i think uh, in terms of steps if we say that okay we know how to uh, for example just to go back to the example of rivers if we say for example that we want our rivers to flow which means we will sort of prepare a framework in which we say that just i'm just saying it very crudely but it would have to be in a much more scientific and a much more refined manner but just say that we say that we want a extract more than 50% of the water from our river or our rivers okay so 50% of the water we'll take for our use and 50% will keep flowing in the river right so in that sense what first of all you need is to prepare frameworks of structuring our developmental choices uh, which are much more aligned to the environmental principles and for that equity is a very very critical parameter for example you know when you say that i will take only 50% of the water from the river then you know you you will have to perforce make sure that everybody uh, you know the water distribution is equitable today what happens is you are extracting a lot of water from say the ecosystem okay which is why 10% of the people get 80% of the water and 90% of the people get 20% of the water but when your extraction goes down then you will have to move towards much more equitable distribution i mean even now you must move towards a much more equitable distribution because one of the reasons for your over extraction is that some people are cornering or using the resource beyond limit 
you know so so yeah so shripa ji last year just would like to ask you how does one then create that kind of social will for all my listeners out there uh, listening to this uh, podcast uh, how can they be more sensitive more understanding more mature in the way they look at and value water resources how do we on a day to day basis yeah. basis try to make that change yeah so i think that's the that's the most important question and that's where i think the social will is created uh, and and you know that the social will is uh, is a sum and of course greater than the sum of the will of all of us so i think obviously it starts with each one of us personally you know what are the choices we make first of all are we making our choices in an informed manner so it's important for us to understand what impact our choices are happening how is the whole development uh, you know uh, interventions being structured are they structured and are they uh, structured on a uh, on a framework that is more aligned to environment and equity sustainability and equity or are they you know unsustainable and are they inequitable we must first get to understand this then we say that wherever possible individually i'll make a choice for a more sustainable and a more equitable uh, way of uh, you know intervention but many choices we cannot make as an individual you know for example in my house if i open a tap and i get the supply municipal supply or the gram panchayat supply of water it's very difficult for me to immediately control from where that water is coming and how so there are certain choices which are made at the societal level so then we will have to also work together as communities as sometimes as family sometimes as communities sometimes as you know uh, what they call this um, uh, resident welfare association sometimes other kinds of uh, organized uh, structures and mobilization where we push these systems into a more sustainable and more equitable direction now that is the real creation of the social will from an individual will you push the society you know social will towards the side and that's a big challenge but i think that can be met when each one of us decides that that is what i will work towards so not only in my own personal life which is very important but not always fully possible okay then you have to work at the higher level and you can do that by networking by linking up with other people uh, uh, and uh, you know mobilizing other people around pushing for similar ideas similar values similar thoughts i think that is really the important part uh, and that's how movements get built up and that's how movements get built up that's how campaigns get built up undoubtedly and for all those individuals who are wondering how you can go about networking uh, i definitely would suggest you check out uh, shripad ji's organization it's called manthan adhyayan kendra uh, shripad ji thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you so much it's been really a very nice opportunity for me and uh, uh, we are always open to answering people's questions and queries and sharing our experiences uh, you know people can reach out to us anytime they they want and we'll try our best to also uh, you know uh, share whatever our understanding is thank you to those of you that have managed to reach this far in the podcast thank you so so much you obviously love me very much or you genuinely enjoyed the show either way i owe you one and i want to do something for you i want to give you the best podcast experience possible so tell me how i can do that tell me how i can make my podcast better tell me what i'm doing wrong tell me what i'm doing right 
Tell me what you'd like to hear more of or what you'd like to hear less of. If you liked or disliked something I said or have any views, comments, criticisms. Honestly, they don't even have to be constructive. If you have anything at all to say, you can write to me at my personal email. That's maitreya.ghorpade at gmail.com. That's M-A-I-T-R-E-Y-A dot G-H-O-R-P-A-D-E at gmail.com. Or find me on Instagram at my personal handle or on at waternoth. I hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.